I'm Jenny Fielding, Managing Partner at Everywhere Ventures. And I'm panicked about good companies running out of money. Knut? Is it Knut or Knut? Knutter. Knutter! What is up, my man? <laughs> Not much. I've been How gone doing, a buddy? long time. I know, and I'll be gone a long time this summer, too. So hang on. Ethan. Howie. So I was gone for a month. What, what would you say was a day in the office without Howard? It was quiet. Yeah, I saw a utility bill way down. Was anybody working? I, I, I was hoping that utility I mean, bill would stay the same as a sign that somebody was turning the lights on. Yeah, I was working with the lights off. Got to keep overhead low, you know. You got the memo. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, it's tough times out there. Yeah, no kidding. It's tough times out there, man. I had to uh, I had to cut my thumb back. Oh yeah. Memo, yeah. I gave him a new app. It's from Venezuela. It's, a, it's it goes through Venezuela, but we save uh, a penny. No, I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know. Our guest today will know if there is a Venezuelan Venmo because she travels the world. Oop! I already gave it up. It's a she. All right. Yeah. Awesome. So anyway, so I was away for a month. Ethan, anything happen? Not a whole lot. It's pretty quiet. What's it like with Howard not here? Yeah, I don't learn as much. <laughs> oh, suck up. I think it's blissfully quiet. It is, right? Yeah. Well, you have your headphones on all the time. What would be different? What? Excuse me? What? Yeah. You're the grumpiest guy. <laughs> I mean, first of all, you're the nicest guy in the world, but yet you have this demeanor. Are you scared of Knut? The first day I was here, it was a little intimidating, but since then, we're pals. He carries yeah. a big stick. I have that softy. effect on people. Sorry. It's a fucking softy. I don't, you need I, to toughen up. I just don't have a poker face. Yeah. These Norwegians, this is why you guys were, uh, I mean, if it, You know what they used to go into battle, the Vikings, way back when? What? Magic mushrooms. Really? That's where the, uh, that's where the concept burst. Wait a minute. You gave them again. You left them for the opposition to eat and get high, or you took them no, to go into battle? No, you took them to have no fear. And it worked. And that's what I take every day I come in here. Magic mushrooms. Well, we should do a podcast just microdosing. <laughs> We're six hours here. Howard's sweating a lot, lost his wallet, can't find his keys. That would be the microdosing episode. Right. Call my mom. I would apologize for something I did in sixth grade. And uh, <laughs> that would be episode two of microdosing. Because I haven't seen... Microdosing would work for people that have seen action, that have been in an actual arena. I yeah. haven't seen action. One time there was no toilet paper at home and I yelled at Ellen and it was solved. I mean, that's the most action I've seen <laughs> where I had to decide if I get up and call Amazon. I don't even know how to do Amazon to get a... And can you just order like a handful of toilet paper for one wipe or do you get ripped off and they give you, you know, these are the things I worry about in the arena that I'm in. <laughs> so I don't know. Do you, I, it's is it even worth, should we just start over? It's overnight <laughs> deliveries. I don't know how long you want to wait. <laughs> uh, oh, she no. must be so excited to be waiting in the wings for this. Yeah. Well, anyway, she wanted to be on the pod. So, so screw that. Anyways, right. what else do I got to cover? I've been away for a month. My boo-boo is healing. Look, this was a deep cut. Ooh, I just pulled the scap off. That wasn't smart. Oh. <laughs> Give me a... <laughs> oh. I the mic just got my scab. It's bleeding again. All right, what else? Yeah, so I have a scab. I was in the That's arena. pretty impressive. And I fell off the arena doing two miles an hour on my bike in Jerusalem because uh, the rocks were moving because I think someone had given me mushrooms and the ground was moving. Well, have you ever been, uh, have you ever had anybody slip you a Mickey? Uh, it has happened, yes. Really? Yeah. And? It was very uncomfortable because I had no idea what was going on. Oh, really? Yeah. That would freak me out. You, Ethan, have you slipped a girl a Mickey? That's the thing they do now. That's not socially acceptable. Howie. I understand, but have you done it? <laughs> no, I have not. All right. Canute, when nope. he's not suspecting, let's get the straight answer on this kid. These Sounds ASU good. kids are known for Mickey slipping. <laughs> That's, that's, a, that's a hashtag on TikTok for ASU. We're it? very inno innovative. Hashtag Mickey slipping. So we've covered all the fourth rails there. What's your thought on Nazis while we're here? Just to make sure we got the right people on. Anyways, this is a show about investing, I think. 
Is it? Yeah. Well, this is your fault for bringing up micro. I got all excited because I, I am all for microdosing. Uh, Ellen's completely against it. My daughter wants to microdose with me. I've heard the greens are greener and the blues are bluer. Have you heard anything about this? Nope. So we're going to do it. All right. No, you, how would go we, would, do we search on the internet? I don't know about greens, but you're going to be pretty uh, paranoid. No, 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 no. I don't think, I don't think it leads to paranoia. I'm very zen. I think whatever mood you go into it with is how you come out. And I have done mushrooms in the past and had pretty good trips. I was 18 or 19. Nothing can go wrong when you're 18 or 19. You have nothing to lose. You have no money. Uh, you're wearing the underwear for the fourth day in a row. You have no. You have nothing going on. <laughs> There's nothing going on. What could go worse than wearing underwear fifth day in a row on a bender? The uh, <laughs> Canute has lost his mind here. That was a lot of fundamental questions at once. I know. I'll think about those. Because that's, can you imagine me microdosing? How many questions would come at you? So anyway, it's good to be back from the road and back working and checking in on uh, things that's social leverage. You know, it's busy. It's busy. Fuck. It's damn busy. We're heading out for the summer. But anyways, my guest, Jenny Fielding, good friend of mine. She, uh, I think we met when she was running Techstars New York, managing director at Techstars New York. I sent her a, a resume just, just right out of the blue. I said, hey, hey, Techstars lady, uh, meet a friend of mine, Alex Tarhini. She hired him, and they went on a good run, uh, Jenny oh, cool. running Techstars. Yeah, she gave uh, Alex this big shot. Now he's at .72. She's given a lot of people big shots. And she is a, um, today, they changed the fund name every month just so they can send emails, I think, because we're LPs in our fund, it's Social Leverage, and the fund is called Everywhere Ventures. I like the original name, but I think this is a good change, a.k.a. The Fund. The Fund was called The Fund, which was very Larry David Zen uh, microdosing of her. They probably named it while they were microdosing. She's the managing partner at Everywhere Ventures. Um, Jenny is an incredible pre-seed investor, Mentored to hundreds of founders around the world. She's a two-time entrepreneur herself, so she knows how challenging it is to build great products, grow sales teams, inspire, keep the lights on, as they say. So she has done a great job surrounding herself with founders, great founders, and then making sure they have the resources they need to thrive. And so we're partners with Jane. We invested in her fund because she knows what she's doing, and we've already co-invested together. Through this new partnership in a company that we, I don't know if we announced it yet, so it's not that important for everybody to hear every deal we do. And back in the day, she was also, this cool, head of digital ventures at BBC. So I wonder if she had a type in a way that made everything sound English, you know? Pass the crumpets, if that sounds different, or you just say it <laughs> and people assume that you read it in British, or uh, our food sucks here. Pass the or, crumpets. what time is your point in at the dentist? Well, you can uh, just- Downton Abbey. All it takes is an AI microphone. You speak American English into it, and wonder if it just comes drips out the other way. That would be beautiful. Twitter has like a drips with obnoxiousness button. And uh, so she worked there, and let's get her before she quits, because she's heard all this, unfortunately, before she just uh, drops her mic and leaves indefinitely. Let's get her on. And she is panicked about... Good companies. Good companies uh, running yeah, out of capital. Or not being able to raise out of money. Cap, which is a really important point, because... Bad companies run out of money all the time, but we had such a good run. This is a good uh, answer by uh, Jenny, typical of how Jenny creatively thinks. Her worry is much like my worry, is the good companies go down with the bad companies, much like the Titanic right now, because the bad companies were so poorly thought through and dragging everybody down with them. So, uh, interesting answer. Let's bring her, uh, she left. <laughs> so, bring in AI, Jenny. Jenny pulled out half of her hair. That was that was good. That we, you are the person who's pulled out the most hair while waiting to be brought on the show. I know. I went to do a little ayahuasca, you know, in the in the waiting room. Ooh, is that the is that the cool term for uh, microdosing? Yeah, that's the mushroom trip that everyone's going on in Northern California. See, you know, this is important that you know this stuff because Howard just here's the word microdosing, and then I say it out loud in front of Alan, and Alan's a bankruptcy attorney, and you know Alan. She immediately seems everything's a bad idea, right? It's amazing that the two of us are together when you, you know both sides of the party and you know my daughter. I know. Now, you've I know, seen us I know all the together. What could you tell people who don't know? You've, you've met everybody in the family. I mean, honestly, I've 
think the most unusual thing about you all is how normal <laughs> and, um, you know, just nice people that you are, despite the external, you know, trappings. That's a good. Knut, do you agree with that? Look at Jenny. No, I'm, she I'm nailed taking us. notes right now. I no, you, she nailed us. She yeah. nailed the Lynn zone. Exactly. What do you think? You've been to, a, you've seen Ellen commit a crime. Uh, <laughs> I saw you commit a crime. With he saw Ellen, Ellen and I commit a crime. Ellen turned her cheek, Miss Lawyer Pants. Oh, it's just a Rolls Royce. Yeah. They can afford to fix that. Yeah, we had a little bump with a Rolls Royce that uh, I had forgotten about, and Ethan reminded me in one of our podcasts that oh, I dear. did a hit and run on a on a Rolls Royce. Oh, and Ellen, of course, Miss Lawyer Pants was Wrote like, a note. "Get out of here!" <laughs> before they find out. Oh, really? Uh, I mean, what a couple! But thank you. We will take your description of us. Yeah. We're very normal because most normal people would leave the scene of a crime. <laughs> <laughs> no, Ellen so, is yes. fantastic, um, as is your daughter. I have not met your son yet, but um, yeah, it's a, always a joy to spend time with them. We have, Max is not prepared to meet people because he brings down the family name. <laughs> it's just, it's like Thurston yeah. Howell III, right, Ethan? Ethan's going to tell us when Max is ready to meet people. I haven't even oh, met him yet. exactly. That's how, that's how far he is away from everybody meeting You know, him. I've met your daughter, Canute though. has met him when he was three. That's when we last thought he was appropriate for- Yeah, first time I saw him was doing his bris. <laughs> oh right! Wow, Canute was guys there for go the brisk. Way back, that's uh, that we, go way back. we went to college together. <laughs> oh my goodness! We went to college together, and I told Canute at my son's brisk that it was good luck to find in the cream cheese. We hide the little piece of skin, <laughs> and I said there is one lucky person who spreads the penis with the cream cheese on a bagel, and it's ten thousand dollars. I said there was some special prize, and Canute was appalled. No, and I went right for believed. it. Went right for the cream cheese. Right, right for the cream cheese. Wanted the ten grand. Wow. Also, was there when I told my at the wedding when I told my in laws who are so, I don't know, conservative, you know, as conservative Jews could go, like so conservative, like you know, that uh, that Ellen and I were expecting in six months our first child at the wedding, and <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> were you there with that? No, Leon I was not almost there for that. had a heart attack. <laughs> Leon has left me alone ever since. You, I laid my groundwork around Leon right then. He was like, what? You're pregnant? Like in front of all his friends. It was just a great joke. Anyways, enough about my fantastic life. Let's talk about your fantastic life and tell me a little bit about Everywhere Ventures. Okay. Well, you can hear the siren in the back um, and that's because I'm in New York City where I live. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know Canute is uh, is aggravated right the now sound. with the background noise, but no, it's um, kind of cool that there's a crime right? going down exactly. and, and a podcast. No, that was yeah. authentic. That's good. It's real. It's authentic New York. Um, so I am one of those strange born and raised New Yorkers. Um, I actually live on the block that I grew up on, but um, you know, at a very young age, started traveling the world. Um, building connections, communities, you know, in faraway places, probably like you, Howard, just back from, you know, a big trip um, mm -hmm. and just, you know, got a taste for, you know, the world outside of New York, which many people think of as the center of the world. Um, and so that's really informed my worldview in many ways and um, the thesis of our fund, which is, you know, innovation is everywhere and we want to be where founders are. And what does that mean today versus 10 years ago, Web 2, where founders were mostly San Francisco? I mean, they were everywhere, of course. You and I always had that tech stars. We had that view that they were everywhere. They were, but they weren't. Um, and Web, Web 2 became a very centralized thing, so San Francisco still controlled it versus what does everywhere mean today? Does it mean more now, finally? Well, I think a few things have happened like on the macro, which is... Um you know, capital was very much constrained in places like San Francisco. So even if you were a great company building, you know, in Finland, there was a pull to the Bay Area because that's where the cash was and the talent. And I think, you know, as we've seen in the last few years, a lot of that capital being, you know, distributed and talent being dispersed, all of a sudden, you know, there's opportunities really around the world. So that's a thesis that you and I maybe started thinking about 10 years ago, but I think we're seeing the reality of, you know, ecosystems really develop in faraway places. So I think it's, you know, it's an exciting time to be looking, you know, internationally for us. So let's get background on Everywhere Ventures. Is Fund 2 or 3? Um, you know, we call it Fund 3, but our Fund 1 was a proof of concept. It was about a $5 million fund, and we just focused on founders that were in New York. 
And all of our capital actually came from other founders in New York. And then our fund two really came because we had founders and operators around the world calling us and saying, hey, we love this by founder for founder model. You know, can I get involved, you know, fill in the blank location? And so we had people in Sweden calling us and in Melbourne, Australia and in, you know, Sao Paulo. Um, And so we said, okay, you know, I wonder if we could build, you know, this model in other locations. So our fund two, um, which was, you know, slightly bigger, really had um, probably about 10 to 15 geographies where we were able to build up kind of these nodes of founders that helped us, you know, find deals, diligence deals, and ultimately support um, companies in those locations. And then by fund three, we were like, okay, let's just take the guardrails off and um, really embrace what we believe, which is innovation is everywhere and, you know, capital should be going to those places. Yeah, what a great idea. And then was it always, I mean, how did you end up at Techstars? I'm going to go back and then we'll we'll get to new ideas and stuff you're working on. We'll keep it very random. But how did you end up at Techstars again? I forget. Because we met maybe right then 10, 10, 12 years ago. Yeah. So um, I actually started as a mentor as Techstars, which I think many people start that way. In New York. Yeah, in New York. I was living in London and I just started getting involved. Um, I was a founder who'd made a lot of stupid mistakes. And back when I started in 2007, 2008, there really just weren't very many resources for people like me, especially outside of the the Bay Area. So I love the model of not just providing capital, but providing kind of resources, community, um, and really kind of a, a platform to help founders go from zero to one. It just really resonated with me as a founder um, and felt like it was something I didn't have, but would have really kind of thrived. So I just started, you know, mentoring, helping out, you know, giving first, as we say at Techstars, not expecting anything in return, but just kind of giving my time and, you know, fell in love with the organization and with the model. And after a little bit of uh, cajoling by uh, David Cohen, Brad Felds, I ended up joining as a managing director there. And so you had a good run there. I really did. How many years were you there? I was there about seven and a half years. That's got to be longer than GMs last anywhere else, right? Were you the longest running GM? Uh, MD? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I think Nicole might might be on the Oh, par. Nicole. I had her on the pod, so yeah. that makes sense that yeah. she was ahead of you. Okay, so yeah. I had her on the pod. She's incredible. So, but yeah, you know, I was there a long time. And, you know, in the early days at Techstars, it was super fun. There was, when I started, there was 25 full-time employees. Um, and I got to have, you know, a weekly call with David Cohen. And so, you know, you really, I kind of learned this early stage investing uh, methodology directly from someone, you know, that was a few yeah, steps one of the ahead originals. of me. Yeah. So it was a yeah. pretty amazing early place to be, you know, to be part of. Yeah. I remember when I met David, I was just in Boulder randomly to see Brad and he introduced me to what they were doing there. And I started writing checks back in 07, 08, 09. And how quickly I ran out of money because Techstars just kept coming and coming and coming. <laughs> uh, you know, they were just, I knew it was a, I was going to be a monster the way they had structured it. And now it just feels like a century ago. But so how many people are they now? I haven't talked to Dave in a couple months, but I don't know. They got to be multi-hundred people. Yeah, I think maybe in the 300s and they're running 50 programs globally. So it's really, um, you know, taken off. And the but billions under changed. AUM too. Yeah. And probably the billions, yeah. I think they have about 5,000 companies they've invested in. So it's really, um, you know, it's been incredible to be, you know, a small part of that. And um, I really, you know, a lot of what we do at Everywhere Ventures has been informed by the Techstars model. You'll see a lot of similarities. Um, you know, I tried to keep my eyes open, see what I felt worked well and maybe didn't work as well and um, kind of build that into to what we're doing. And other than New York, what's your favorite city? Because you've traveled the world endlessly. To live in or <laughs> what's the I don't know, favorite city and then favorite, if you had to move, what would be your favorite city? But what's your favorite city to hang out in and meet founders? Um, well, I've been spending a lot of time in Spain and I'm very impressed. I've, you know, I've always loved Barcelona. I lived there for about 10 months, but I'm very impressed by what's happening in uh, Madrid. Um, it's really every time I go, you know, when you go to those ecosystems and they feel a little bit nascent and then you go the next year and they feel a little bit better. Like every year I go to Madrid, it feels more international, like more developed, more stuff going on. So I'm pretty excited about that becoming, you know, kind of a central place, you know, outside of the usual London, Berlin, um, ecosystems. 
It's just the people. You know, I'm friends. Do you know Javier Kibo Ventures? Yes. Met him. Yeah. So Javier is a good friend of mine. So Javier uh, lived on Coronado. He tried oh, okay. to move their post-banking era and he got the bug. We became, our daughters became best friends. So he used to come over when I was starting stock twits. Oh, on nice. The, the Spanish guy just wanted, he looked, he was like a bullfighter and I was, uh, looked like I've been run over by bulls. <laughs> so we became instant friends. I love it. And uh, he has a lot of eyebrows and I have no eyebrows. So it was just like, uh, it was like uh, Laverne and Shirley. Anyways, he was so enamored with like, he invested with us and he was so enamored by like, what we were doing and he went back to Madrid when he couldn't get his green card and, and started Kibo Ventures. And now they're like fund. I don't know. They're probably the biggest angel investor in, in Madrid. Yeah. They have a and, great, yeah. a great reputation. I've, I've only met him once, but um, you know, every, everyone loves them. And yeah, I just, it's very exciting to be part of these developing ecosystems. So I lived in London, 2010 or 2009, 10, 11, and that was another place where I just, you know, it was just kind of getting going. So Shoreditch was starting, Google Campus opened sure, up. Shoreditch. And it was like really fun to be part of those early, um, you know, th that early momentum. So I'm not part of it in Madrid, but every time I go, I go every summer. I'm just like really impressed by, you know, what they're trying to do. And don't you get tired? You're always moving. I don't. I'm just back from Rio, which was incredible. So and you, what would you blame on Rio this time? <laughs> I'd blame nothing. It was epic. I'd actually never been there. I'd been to Sao Paulo, um, which is actually- I heard mixed, but you loved it? I loved it. So it's um, the startup ecosystem is incredible. Um, the founders are just resilient. And, you know, as one founder said to me, um, so there was some article saying that, you know, early stage funding to Brazilian founders is down 86% in Q1. And as the founder mm -hmm. said to me, like, this is nothing compared to what Brazilians are used to in their day-to-day -day life. So the kind of resilience and the outlook is just, you know, infectious down there. So I absolutely loved it. And um, yeah. So where would you live? So you're saying Madrid or, or is that your favorite found where you're where you feel the most energetic? Where would you live if you had to leave tomorrow? Yeah. So I'd live in Barcelona. OK, got it. How do you decide to split up? Like, how do you decide not to sit still and let the deals come to you versus chasing deals around the world? What's the formula yeah. there? So, um, you know, as I mentioned, when we started, we were a community of 50 founders um, who all pooled our capital into a fund. And now we have 500 of those founders that are all RLPs. So they're founders and operators, you know, working on projects around the world. They've given us money. And in addition, they give us deal flow. They give us access to really the communities on the ground where they help us kind of diligence um, and support those companies when we invest. So the pull is really um, inbound rather than outbound. So we don't say like, oh, I want to, you know, start investing in India. We have founders who are there who are LPs who start, you know, showing us deal flow and it's, it's very organic. And so we don't make a conscious decision of like, oh, we want to be in these ecosystems. We've done our research and this is our thesis. We let the founders and the ecosystems pull us, if that makes sense. Yeah. And the size checks that you're writing now? So um, we write a quick 50K check as kind of like our scout check. And then our core check is 250K. And so what are you seeing yourself? The lot? You've now been through the boom, the bust, the Brazilians, like you said, like certain people, this is nothing. Yeah. To Americans, it's something, but it drags so many people in. So what's the biggest thing that you've seen? Because I said, you said that you're most worried about the good companies not getting set. So what do you mean by that? Yeah. So I think um, what we're seeing is what we're calling this flight to quality where investors are still, you know, sitting on a lot of capital, still, you know, want to deploy, but they're really taking safe bets um, as opposed to what they've been doing, you know, for the last 10 years, I guess, more, um, you know, opportunistic or, you know, experimental type investing. So the flight to quality, what we're seeing, if you think of our portfolio, which has 250 companies at this point, you know, you've got a top tier, um, you've got a middle and you've got a bottom. Now, in the last few years, I think the bottom companies have been continuing to get funding. And as you and I know, that's not really healthy either, right? The bottom companies should go out of business. Those founders, if they're good founders, should regroup and kind of recycle, right? 
Um, the top founders actually right now are really commanding even more capital. So we have um, a few companies in our portfolio, which I'd consider the top, which have just closed kind of mammoth rounds. And they've had multiple term sheets and they've done it quickly, right? So there's more capital chasing, call it that top, you know, 15 to 20%. The companies that I'm worried about and what I'm panicked about is, you know, that mid-tier company. So they're actually a really good company. Um, you know, they have good fundamentals. They maybe didn't raise on an opportunistic time or too opportunistic, I should say. Like maybe they raised in 2021, right? And so they're kind of getting to the end of their runway. Maybe they raised at slightly too high valuation um, and it's going to have to be a down round. Maybe they haven't done all the cuts they needed to, but these are good companies. And I think that middle tier is really going to get caught right now. And that's what I'm worried about because Again, I think these are fundamentally great companies that should exist. They just got unlucky with timing in many ways. And so what do you do? Because you're a small number on the cap table. So what do you do? Like this is where it's always tricky because you can't get dragged down. You have to focus on the winners. But how do you manage all that with this many companies? Yeah, I mean, we try to support our founders with mostly resources and good advice. So we try to say like, you know, here's other founders that you should talk to that maybe were in your situation at some point um, that maybe you can learn from. Um, when we see something, I think what we're known for or what I'm known for is really um, being direct. Um, and so that can be unusual in venture where everyone wants to be nice and everyone wants to kind of keep optionality. And I've, you know, just call up founders and I'm like, dude, your burn is way too high. We need to cut this. And when I get pushback, you know, I give them the reality check that, you know, they're going to be out of business and no one's going to come save them. So I think, you know, having those hard conversations that no one wants to have is something that, you know, we've been doing for a long time and we feel fine with. Right. I, I just can't believe how many founders I had to just say Guys, who's telling you to do this stuff? Because it's not me. So I know you must be getting this information from somewhere right. to burn recklessly. And who do you who do you think is going to be there for you when you run out of money? Yeah, you know. So the good news is, I think the the message has been delivered. If you're not aware of this by now, you weren't meant to ever be an entrepreneur. Um, but now, like you said, now we have the the winter where certain companies are just going to skate by. Good founders will be able to skate by here and figure out ways. We've had founders doing that. And then other ones are just staring at us like, what do I do next? And I'm like, that's not what we do here. We'll give you good advice. But like what we do next is up to the founder. Yeah. Like you got to pick up the phone. You got to use LinkedIn. You got to use those tools that we all make fun of and make magic happen. I've been pretty surprised, um, you know, how hard it is for founders to um, cut their teams back. Now, I get it on the one hand, like, you know, hiring has just been so hard the last few years. And so if you spent, you know, the last two years just bringing together your dream team, I understand why you're reluctant to let them go. But there has to be a reality check that you can't support this. So, you know, I think there's been a lot of that. The other thing that we've seen that we've been quite surprised at is just the, you know, the huge salaries early stage companies are paying, um, you know, while they're still you know, Series A companies, seed companies. And, you know, I believe that the job of the CEO is to, you know, attract talent with things other than cash, right? And so, yeah. you know, when I've said that to founders, they oh, Jenny, yeah, that sounds nice, but you don't know how hard it is out there. Like, yeah, I do. Um, yeah. But that is, you know, the role of the, the CEO, um, especially, and, and really the founding team. So, you know, cutting back the teams, um, the team size, re reducing burn has been much harder than I thought it would be for many founders. Yeah, I think that's the big one, right? Like it's, they just got used to figuring out how to recruit, even yeah. whether it was right or wrong or chasing recruiting. Mm -hmm. And now the idea that all that time was wasted, it's kind of like a trade. You know, when, it, when, when I learned the markets in 99, it was just me against the machine. So it either cut my, you know, my only cost was like, do I have a tax write-off and move on to the next one. I didn't have to make other decisions. So they're, they're coming to fires not with the stock market, it's with humans and with bad decisions that they made that aren't quite as simple. You know, you're going to have to deal with reputation. This person may say something bad about you. They may talk bad about your company. It's oh, not yeah. as easy as just selling a stock. For sure. And I, and I went think, through this with my own company um, where we almost went, ran out of money and we had to make some hard decisions. So you know, I say it with a lot of, you know, empathy and I realize that it's hard, but I also think, you know, your obligation is to the, you know, the company. And so, 
you know, it is your job to keep the company, you know, afloat and to make right financial decisions. And I, I think there's been a reluctance to do that. And so it's been it's been hard to watch from the sidelines. And as you mentioned, we're a small fry investor, right? We're the earliest investor in the cap table. We usually have, you know, probably the smallest check in. Um, and so our influence is really just around, you know, how much support we've we've been, you know, providing and, you know, how much the founders value our guidance. But we don't have, you know, we're not on boards to, to tell founders what to do. It's simply to say, hey, this is a best practice. This is what we're seeing. And maybe you should speak to some other founders who've gone through this who can maybe guide you. Yeah. And so what is exciting to you now? We've talked about Barcelona, Rio, Madrid. Uh, what's surprising you right now in, in terms of like what people are focused on? Because you see so many companies. I think the thing that's surprising me most is, um, you know, when I hear from founders that they're finding it hard to fundraise because, you know, whatever category they're in is out of favor. Um, now, these are, again, I'm investing at the pre-seed. So when founders tell me that, um, say, in SureTech, there was just, you know, some article in PitchBook saying, you know, some stats about InsureTech and everyone hates InsureTech now. I'm investing for the next 10 years, right? So when I make an investment, I don't expect a realization for a very long time. So it's um, it's a little disheartening that, um, you know, there's a part of the market that's so focused on today. I mean, I get it if you're in the public markets, but that shouldn't really reflect what we're investing in today. So on, on the flip side, I'm pretty excited about that. I love fintech. And because, you know, fintech has been, um, you know, down in, in the dumps in the public market, we've seen prices come down at the early stage, which gives me more opportunity. So ultimately, um, you know, it doesn't really bother me, but I think it's a, a just a strange human characteristic that if I'm investing for, you know, the future, I shouldn't really be looking at the trends of today because that's that's not really relevant. I have to have a thesis of where the world is going. And so with insurance, for example, um, you know, we've looked at a bunch of insure tech companies in um, LATAM, for example. Um, and so, you know, it's very hard to get those companies funded right now. Everyone's down on insurance. People are, you know, thinking twice about developing ecosystems. But if you believe that there's kind of a rising middle class and that there's, you know, that those ecosystems or, or those countries are changing and that this is going to be a trend of the future, then by all means, I think it's a great time to be investing in those spaces. So yeah, we we just do our own thing. We don't really you know, worry about it. And we're actually benefiting, I guess, from many people retreating from both international investing, because now they're saying, oh, well, we can get to valuations that make sense at home. And in categories that we like, um, which is insurance, fintech, some of these ones that are really out of favor, um, we're excited about. But you can still, if you see 10 companies in a row in New York, you can just do them all in New York. Sure. Sure. I mean, yeah. our fund, you know, the reality is about 70% are North America. Um, and then 30% is kind of this rest of world, which is really divided into LATAM, Africa, and um, Europe for now, um, as we kind of spread our tentacles in, in other places. Where do you see the worst with this debacle? Like on all parties everywhere, is it is it at the growth VC level in North America or is it the founder in London? What, like where is it the ugliest? I mean, growth rounds all around, I think, have been hard. But again, I mean, our portfolio doesn't really speak to that because, again, if you have good companies, they have – I mean, we have a company that got four term sheets and, a, you know, Series C – so and had no problem doing so. So there is this kind of binary outcome that I think is happening, which is the good companies are struggling, the great companies are not. Um, and, you know, that makes me worried. I see that all up and down the, you know, the stack. But I think at growth, it's, it's pretty acute. And so what's going to happen if you're a growth company, you're doing well, but you're not crushing it and you're overvalued um, from your last valuation? I think you're in a very tenuous spot. So... That worries yeah, me. I think that's the weakest spot. And the lesson is that may never come back, meaning the next thing that could come back is IPOs, which means everything gets ratcheted down. And what was a Series D it should have already been public. So the, the whole stack's going to change. That's one thing I know. The stack's going to change with ZERP, unless you go right back to ZERP, which, you know, anything's possible. I'll change my mind again. Yeah. But um, in a non-ZERP world, that growth capital is dumb. It would never made sense to me to yeah. delay things, and Stripe is probably the ultimate, penultimate, what could go wrong. 
So I don't think we go right back to that. Yeah. And what do you think about um, M&A opportunities? Because that's something that's been coming up a lot. Well, if you're a good company, but you're not quite have the metrics, maybe there's an opportunity to, um, you know, have some some M&A opportunity or to team up with another company. So we're, we're kind of, um, you know, interested in that as well. I think it's a good time to be creative and there's no bad ideas. Yeah. When everybody's hurting, there's no bad ideas. Meaning if you think you're hurting and other guys, just assume the other guy's hurting. Well, I think the biggest thing that I've been complaining about is, you know, the Googles and the Apples, they may not have been as acquisitive as one would think or want them to be. But they were acquisitive, Salesforce. And we've gone into this new era where I guess there was so many young founders and so many just, I think, bad or very inexperienced boards. And so no one has a corp dev muscle, it feels like. And every corp dev deal from Square's Afterpay to like whatever, Robin, it's just, it's just so non-impressive, you know. Even Uber, like forgetting good and bad, like who gave them advice that they had to take over the world? Like, America's so big that I don't know what people were thinking about. So to answer your first question on M&A, U.S. is where M&A lives. So M&A, if you're relying on M&A and you're international, your M&A chances have got to be 90% lower than M&A in the U.S. I don't have the numbers on that, but I'd, I never hear of like banks buying things in other countries or roll-ups happening in other countries. You know, you've got your French conglomerates, of course, in fashion, but it's just not like they're waking up and buying stuff. You know, they're buying second generation businesses, right? So it's a very different mindset around M&A. So at US is the M&A capital of the world. And I think where we're still here is we're probably still a couple of years away from it because American companies are behaviorally doing what behavior makes you do, which is cut people, which then means innovation slows down which then finally leads to, oh my God, the market's going up and we're way behind, we need to do acquisitions. So I don't think we're at that point yet, right? There's still pink sheets being handed out left and right. It was such a long boom, and I think the M&A will come, but first you need M&A teams, (laughs) and most of these young software companies were like, fuck it, Wall Street doesn't know what they're doing, our stock is great. Now the realization with all these cloud companies is, you know what, Wall Street, you may not like them, but they vote, and they vote in weird, mean, non-momentous ways. And, you know, this lesson of we've lost our momentum is a very powerful thing. And to gain your momentum back, you got to kiss a lot of ass and execute for a long time. But I think the M&A is, like, just around the corner at some level, but there could be a massive M&A boom with so much cash on the sidelines. We need some people with vision inside these companies to say one plus one equals three. We don't have to build everything ourselves. And here's a company that we should tuck in or or roll in. What are you thinking about that? Yeah. I mean, I'm also just thinking about kind of smaller M&A opportunities, which is some of our growth companies acquiring some of our, you know, earlier stage companies that, you know, are, are doing well, but there can be some efficiencies, you know, at scale. So, um, we're, we're trying to get creative, actually, and um, make sure that, you know, founders are connected to folks, you know, in their general zip code so that they knew who the players are and that they're well acquainted. And so if those opportunities come up. So, yeah, obviously, big exits would be with larger companies and, and public companies. But I think there'll be some interesting consolidation, which actually could work out. I mean, we've had a few of our companies um, in that position. And, you know, we're pretty happy to take, you know, for the most part, some of the acquiring companies' um, equity as well. It gives us, you know, a better shot. So, yeah, no, we, I spent half my day sending strategy notes toward my favorite CEO saying, well, have you thought about this idea to speed things up? You know, and then most CEOs will say, well, this isn't in our roadmap today. But I said, well, you know what isn't in your roadmap? That the price will be down 90% two years from now. And that maybe even if it doesn't fit in with your roadmap today, you could run these two in parallel because the value is just never going to be better. So it's just like I'm trying to probe my good CEOs to not like screw up and like wreck something good. But like, guys, this is like a muscle that you need to learn. And these downturns are when you speed things up. So it's a really good question you asked. And I do think M&A has been neglected as a tool. And again, most M&A doesn't work. That's why it scares people. But in a world of software and machines, M&A should work better than ever. In a world where everybody has spreadsheets, in a world where there's not a lot of assets, 
where everything's just cash-based management, we should be able to figure these things out. Yeah, I think so. So we're we're kind of spending more time on that recently and, um, you know, flexing that muscle or learning that muscle for ourselves. So that's been, um, I'd say, an interesting development <laughs> for an early stage investor. Give me one cool company that's doing something cool that you just love that you see. It, it may not work, may work, but like what's something that's really cool that you guys funded recently? Um, how about one that's off thesis that I loved and we were the first check in. I love telling the story because um, this company is called Pair Eyewear, which originally started as eyeglasses for kids. Now, people that know yeah. me know that I'm mostly a fintech and healthcare investor. And so why would I be interested in eyeglasses for kids? Um, now the company actually does um, eyeglasses for everyone. But what's super cool about them is that the frames, um, I should get a pair, have these clip-ons um, or these magnetic clip-ons. So you get a base pair and then you can have all these different kind of patterns, characters that just kind of clip, you know, that just uh, magnetically adhere and they're very inexpensive, right? So it's like $15 and you can have all of your, you know, all the different colors and, and um, si sizes and shapes. So I met these founders. They were like still at Stanford. Um, and I kind of didn't even want to take the intro because <laughs> I'm like, what, eyeglasses? This is so not my thing. But you know, when you see a spark um, in a team, right, who just had a vision, not just for eyeglasses for kids, but a whole way to rethink about supply chain and cost and end users. And they had, you know, they were 20 years old, right? And they had like such a sophisticated plan that we were excited to, to write the first check. Um, that company has gone on to, you know, do great things. Um, they've raised multiple rounds of capital um, and, and are doing great. And so it's always a good reminder, you know, to me and to other early stage investors of, you know, you can have your thesis all day long, but when you see a spark in a founder, right, those resilient founders, those founders that have a vision about the future that doesn't exist today, you just kind of lean in and, and write a check. So so we're excited about pair, even though, um, you know, outside of our, our thesis. But that's how you create alpha is breaking your own rules. Like you don't create alpha by doing that every time, but you create extra special alpha by either creating value for your LPs by doing something that might not, you know, sometimes you got to hold your nose and write that check. We did that with Manscaped. So, exactly. so with this, what's the name of the website? The pair? No, it's just called pair eyewear. Pair eyewear.com. P-A-I-R. Eyewear.com. Yeah. And that's cool. So I've, I've, in the old days, I wore clip-ons. So you're saying these clip-ons? They're could... not clip-ons. They're magnetic. Um, and so, oh, they're magnetic. Yeah. So literally, you put on the base pair, and then you've got like four or five other ones, and they just, you know, magically adhere. Um, and they're, you know, they're super fun. Um, they're very reasonably priced, and they've, you know, built a factory of the future um, to manufacture these with, you know, great supply chain. So um, great margins. I mean, it's just a great fundamental business. It's not what I typically invest in, but again, you know. It kind of drives me crazy when, you know, LPs, not like yourself, but more traditional LPs are, are really honing in on, on thesis at the, you know, at our stage. Because the truth is, when I look at some of my best companies, they've pivoted, right? And so Pair hasn't, but, yeah. you know, many other in, in our um, portfolio has. And so we're really just looking for, you know, great, resilient founders. Um, and, you know, the rest kind of takes care of itself. Here's a thesis that I asked founders in 2023. How much money do you think it's going to need to get to escape velocity? How fast can you do this without begging for money? Yeah, because I think it's an interesting um, mindset. In the last few years, um, you know, there's been a little bit of like an entitlement where, you know, founders yeah. just expect that you're going to raise your next round. Now, I started my first company in 2007. I raised um, a small 500 angel round, I didn't really think that there'd be money beyond that. Um, you know, we actually, turns out that there was as we started to scale. But I think the mindset, you know, I'd come from finance, you know, I went to law school, I didn't come from, you know, the tech ecosystem, I was living in New York. And so the mindset always then was like, build a sustainable business where you kind of control it, right, which is around profitability. Um, so I don't want to swing, you know, too far that everyone has to be building a profitable business from day one. And that is what venture capital is for. But in the last few years, you know, people would come to us, founders would come to us and they kind of would have an idea and just expect that they could raise a $3 million round. Now, if they went to certain schools and if they came from certain companies and if they were based in certain locations, they probably could. But that, those weren't really the companies that we were interested in. All of our companies that are top performers, the founders have very interesting um, stories. 
and backgrounds where they've overcome hardship, where they have a chip on their shoulder, and they just haven't been from the elite. Well, fantastic. I think we definitely have learned a lot about you. Yeah, you have a patience of Job to put up with me all these years. And, you know, you're building out a firm. You know, you've seen it happen at Techstars. You, you have this great joie de vivre around founders and this boundless energy that you contribute to the ecosystem. What's been the hardest thing for you in knowing that you want to do this and then forgetting the raising money part? What's the hardest part that uh, you didn't know? So, you know, running a micro fund as an emerging manager is much um, more like running a startup than it is, you know, being an investor if I was like an investor at Bain Capital, right? And so I think the thing I, I underestimated was all the other things that, you know, you need to do, right? Which is raise capital, which is, you know, manage your team, you know, which is speak at events around the world to raise your profile, which is run your marketing, all these kinds of things. And so the truth is I only spend, you know, 25% of my time actually investing. And so maybe I understood that intellectually, but when I actually, um, in practice, it's a little bit weird. Like I'm, I'm much more like the CEO I was when I started my two companies running a business than I am, you know, just being an investor. Yeah. Uh, we built a team here where I spent a hundred percent of my time that I'm not doing this fucking around. And this isn't fucking around. This is investing because we invest together. But uh, so I actually consider this investing. I spend a hundred percent of my time putting out the vibe and investing, which is probably why I continue to love doing this because yeah. I'm not doing Tom's job. Although grass is greener. Everybody thinks someone else's <laughs> job is great. I just was born to be an investor, I mean, meaning I'm born to talk to people and see things. And So here's the truth, Howard. When I say that, I don't say it as those are the other, you know, the other things are the bad things. I'm a natural no. CEO and I actually like the diversity of it. So I go really deep when I want, you know, we just started our own podcast, right? And so, you know, I've been working on that and I've been, you know, working on expanding our LP base. And so, you know, I have all these other hats that I can put on and I actually think that's the most fun part of the job. It was just unexpected. Yeah, no, no, you are a CEO. I'm not, meaning I always wait for Tom. I just push the buttons and Tom goes, what the fuck have you been doing for six months? I got to pull the reins in on this. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, I'm not a natural CEO and I'm waiting to be led versus if you let me be CEO, things will uh, not go well past one person. And look at me. I got got an intern running the whole fucking place. (laughs) The uh, well, anyways, you are a good CEO for sure. You have all the qualities. You ask the right questions. You you know to call Tom, not me for certain things. I've already talked to Tom twice Um, today, so. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. See, so the thing is, like, we have this great organization where even though we're small, we know everybody, we got each other's back. Like, my job is to make sure that we're front end loaded with deal flow, which is talking to people like you about deals, not about how stuff works and about the world. You know, as much as I travel the world, I, I'm friends with enough people that are traveling the world all the time to touch base and see. So, good insights there. I know that uh, you put in the hours. And then and shout out to you for um, for reading my LP updates and getting some deal flow from that. So, um, you know, I send this LP update every month. Right. And there's you know, there's a lot of stuff about what we're doing in the community. There's a lot of stuff on the deals, what we're seeing trends. And Howard is like the first person to open it, read it and respond. And um, he ended up responding, asking for an intro to a, a deal that I was leading. And then um, he ended up leading the seat. So. That's a, a, a fintech company in our in our wheelhouse, and that was uh, really exciting. But big shout out to you for being um, such an engaged LP. Well, that is my job. I appreciate it, but that is my job. Like I, People are always surprised, and I'm like, when people read my email and send me a nice note, I'm like, you know, I get up and write. If, you know, I, why send it? it? Like, I don't read everybody's email, and part of my job is to curate, but if, my, if the managers that we invest in are sending me updates, it is my job to read them. And to see, and now, Ethan, you're doing that too. You're ingesting them. But yeah, we have to get better at, part of our job was to get bigger, was to push the investing, the 100% that we can't do to people that are doing it more than us. And eventually you'll figure it out and either go up to 50% or hire someone that does it 75% of the time. But that's what we trust you to do. So there's no real answer to how to do this other than to be doing it. And like you said, I think the key is to give good advice. That scales. Bad advice is like cancer. And it's hard to remove bad advice from the system. 
And, you know, a boom that we've had has led to a lot of bad, like we're seeing, like just, what? You don't, this isn't how it works. We don't get massages and sushi. Uh, although sushi happens here, Mondays. Yeah. And so we have to, un- unfortunately, pull that cancer out of the system and get things back to, listen, you may not have to make profits the first year, but there has to be some semblance that you're thinking through where we're not going to be on the dole to venture capitalists because we've seen how that plays out. And um, the LPs need to have money returned to them for this whole thing to work, which is another thing, the circle of life. Uh, so, so I appreciate your contributions to the circle of life. What's the biggest exit you've had? Have you had one where you're like, oh, this feels good to return big, big numbers to LPs? Have you had one of those? Um, not through Techstars. Yeah, through Techstars, I had a company um, yeah. that went public. So it was talk about seeing the circle of life, right? You know, two guys and a prototype through to a public company. So that was a pretty incredible experience. Awesome. So you've seen it all. That helps. Uh, I look forward to doing some more deals together. And then where's your next big trip? So like you, I'm heading to Israel in two weeks and um, excited about that. We'll cool. have to set you up there with a few people. That sounds great. Always looking for okay. recommendations. All right. Well, have a great summer. Great to see you. Thanks, Howard. Uh, keep cranking and uh, we'll let you go. All right. Back to work. Thanks so much. This was super fun. Thank you. K-Nut. Howie, dude. So she has a podcast, Venture Everywhere? Yep. Right, so that's cool because she is everywhere. She everywhere. is like the cloud. That's what it takes. I mean, listen, that's where you invested in her. It's like yeah. busy feet. Eyes, ears, feet. Energetic. That's how you invest. You can't invest from a desk. Zoom was a fallacy. Zoom was a, uh, it was a false lead. Zoom is a magical thing, uh, but it's a tool that is to be used uh, as a secondary tool, not as a primary tool. It was a primary tool for pandemic. It's not a primary tool for living your life. Now, there are a certain percentage of people who are phobic, and it's been a miracle. But uh, you aren't phobic people. Get out. (laughs) Eyes, ears, nose, feet. That is how you invest. That is Jenny Fielding, a pro. We like to have pros on here. If everybody's a pro, we just like to goof around a little bit. You are listening to Panic with Friends. I, Howard Linzone, or Linzen, or H-Man, or The King. What do people call me? Asshole. The, uh, you can search my name, or asshole. I, we're ranking high on asshole these days. But you can search my name, Howard Linzen, or Panic with Friends on Apple, Spotify, Google, YouTube, um, what's the Russian Yandex? That's the Russian search engine. Nice. And it's under Trader. And uh, you'll see <laughs> Panic with Friends. Uh, you subscribe, and you will get a podcast. It won't sound like that when you subscribe. It'll just say, ah, ah. and you will get one of my podcasts uh, every week when I do them with Canute. Thanks, Canute. And uh, thanks, Ethan, for stepping in here. And uh, I don't know what you're doing. But uh, it's, it's not hurting us. And we will see everybody soon. Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast.